Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 287, Dr. Andrew Perry on John 1. If you've been listening to the Trinity's podcast for a while, one thing you know about this podcast is that we don't underestimate the intelligence of our audience. It would be easy just to say, hey, here's the right answer. All these things are clear. All these things are easy. All these things are obvious. But they're not. A lot of the things we discuss on this podcast are things that godly and educated people do disagree about. Of course, I'm not shy about letting you know what I think about these issues, but I think there's a lot of value in presenting different perspectives on a text. In this case, one of the most strange and difficult texts in the New Testament. Now, whether it's difficult because this writer is just obscure, or rather that we've made it difficult by imposing our traditions on it, that remains to be seen. But this is a difficult passage what scholars call the prologue to the fourth gospel. So today I'm starting a series of podcasts. We'll explore different ways of looking at this famous opening to the gospel according to John. Before we get to my first interview, let's just listen to this passage as translated by the New Revised Standard Version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him, He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And here there's a textual difficulty, and scholars disagree about which is the correct reading. It could be what you just heard, or it could be, It is an only Son, God, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Or, some scholars are firmly convinced that it should say, It is the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. Now, what did we just hear? Did we just hear a teaching of the eternal existence and divine nature of the Son of God? And then subsequently of his incarnation, that is, his becoming human while somehow still remaining divine? Is there a teaching here of a multi-personal God, or is something else going on? 
Dr. Andrew Perry is an independent scholar living in the northeast of England. A retired IT manager, he earned his PhD in New Testament from Durham University, writing his dissertation on the Holy Spirit in Luke and in Acts. You can read as many interesting papers on his academia.edu page, and you can find his book Before He Was Born at lulu.com. Dr. Perry, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. I've read a lot of your work online, and today we're going to talk about your interpretation of the famous prologue to John, one of the most analyzed, maybe most overanalyzed passages in the history of the literature of the world, and certainly in the Bible. And the way a lot of people view John is that it's the deity of Christ gospel, whereas the first three gospels, which are assumed to be earlier, they present Jesus, you know, as the Son of God and the Messiah and so on, maybe just with little hints strewn in about how Jesus is really God. Well, the gloves are off in the gospel, according to John, and he's just God here. And more than that, they would say that, look, you can see this concept of a multi-personal God right at the start of this famous passage. So, the New Revised Standard says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so they say the word was God there at the end. That means that the word has the divine nature. Obviously, the word is Jesus. We find that out later uh, in verse 14, the word became flesh and lived among us. Okay, so the word was God. That means the word is fully divine, has the divine essence. But yet you can't completely collapse God with the word because it says the word is with God. So you get the divine, uh, the shared divine essence from saying the word was God. And you get the two different divine persons from saying that one is with the other. So I guess God here should be taken to be the Father. So it's like in the beginning was the pre-human Son. The Son was with God. And the Son was fully divine, I guess, is how they read it. And then it goes on to say all things came into being through, they would say, the Son, the pre-human Son. I mean, this is a blockbuster, right? It presents Christ as being the one who created the world, or at least he's like the next to furthest back, most ultimate creator, God the Father created through him. And they would say, uh, look, it starts in the beginning, that's like in timeless eternity, and so it's basically asserting that the Word has always existed and never came into existence, and so the Word has to be uncreated, which fits with its being fully divine, rather with his being fully divine. And of course, you know, it calls Jesus God at the end of the gospel when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. So when I pick up commentaries on this text, most of the things I just said are just taken for granted. And then they want to argue about some of the details about how to translate it, what the background is, was this a pre-existing hymn and so on. But on your view, this is all quite wrongheaded. How would you come at this common understanding of this famous passage? Well, um, you're correct when you say that uh, a lot of that is taken for granted in commentaries and also in papers, in journals as well. They'll have some interest in the text and take a lot of the framework that you've been outlining for granted, whereas I really want to question each element of the framework. It's difficult to take the whole framework because you don't really know where to start. You want to sort of pick out all the elements of that framework. So, for example, you would want to investigate what the beginning was. You use the idea of a timeless beginning, but, well, why would it be a beginning if it was timeless? What exactly is that? How would we establish the beginning that John was referring to? Again, you just shifted from the title, the word, to the identity, the son, and we would want to investigate that. Can we make that identification of the word with the son? If we wanted to say that the word was pre-existent, why should we say that it was the son that was pre-existent? Why would it not be the case that, in fact, the son is the incarnation Mm. of the word, i.e. the result of the incarnation of the word? So, I would want to question that sort of easy slide that you make between the Word and the Son. Mm-hmm. Again, you mentioned uh, the all things in verse 3, um, as if it was obvious that this is the universe or the world or the earth. 
I would want a method for investigating what John meant by all things. So those are some of the things immediately looking at verse 1 and through to verse 3 that I'd want to look at. You sort of wanted to identify God separately from the word and yet to identify the word with God because we have the word was with God and the word was God. I would want to look at under what circumstances could an individual be called God, Mm -hmm. um, whether that equates to divine nature. There's perfectly good Greek for talking of divine nature, but that's not the Greek that we have in verse 1. Uh, we have a simple identity, was God. What does that mean? Does it mean that uh, Jesus was Yahweh of the Old Testament, for example? I'm pretty certain that that is not what he's saying. But again, we need a way to decide that. When I gave my little exposition just now, Dr. Perry, in a way, I just sort of merrily imported Nicene-era interest back into it, yeah. right? Clearly, he's asserting the eternity of the Logos, because that's a very important point from a Nicene perspective. And clearly, if somebody's called God, that must be because they have the divine essence. That's a little dodgy, right? Because we're taking an idea of a multi-personal God that comes about in the latter half of the 300s, and we're bringing it here into this, I assume you would agree, it's a first century text? Yeah, it's an early text from my point of view. I would date John prior to AD 70. But yeah, being anachronistic with regard to your interpretation is a big problem. You have you know, 1,700 years of church theology, church Christology, based on the 4th century creeds and so on, and people are reading John 1 through that sort of lens. And I just don't think we can do that. We need to read it through the lens of the first century, a Jewish framework, uh, and particularly a scriptural framework. And that's how I approach it. One thing I think is lost on a lot of readers now is how kind of startlingly different this is from the other three Gospels. Even in this Gospel, according to John, Jesus never takes credit for creating the cosmos And at least as I understand it, he actually doesn't assert his own pre-existence either, although that's a controversial point. In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as I read them, they don't teach that Jesus existed before his human career. And it seems to me that the accounts of the miraculous conception in Matthew and Luke actually seem to assume and imply that he began to exist in Mary. So... I mean, if John's going to come along, I guess in your view, around the same time as the other Gospels, or maybe after Mark and before the others, is that where you place it? Um, I don't think it matters. I mean, I think that uh, all four Gospels predate AD 70 for uh, a particular reason, but I think they're just coming out of the same sort of environment Mm -hmm. in the same time, you know, uh, exactly from our perspective from AD 30 to AD 70, is the same chunk of time when we have some of the original witnesses still alive and able to talk uh, about Christ and so on, and to read and hear what's being written. And therefore, I sort of treat all four Gospels as coming out of the same sort of time, rather than saying, oh, well, Mark is like mid-40s, if you wanted to say that, uh, and John must be late 60s, and there's 20 years between them, and lots of things might have happened in terms of theology and thinking about Christ between AD 40 and AD 60. I tend not to see that. I just tend to think, let's see the four Gospels coming out mm-hmm. uh, from the same environment yeah. and, uh, and try and harmonize them. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of an easy, breezy developmentalism, I think that's usually assumed that um, the way I put it was... The first three, which are assumed to be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of mutter and gesture at the Jesus being God or fully divine. And then John, now he, he, his language is different for some reason. He just blurts it out constantly or clearly implies it constantly. But what you're saying is interesting. Surely when we're looking back in time and making distinctions of time, there's kind of a resolution to what we can distinguish, you know? And for someone like me or you, it's very, it's very easy, for instance, to tell a fourth century piece of theology from a first or second century piece of theology, because the interests are different, the language is different, the references are different, right? 
Yeah. So between the three hundreds and the one hundreds, I mean, it's very easy. If someone dug up a new writing tomorrow, there would be near universal agreement among readers that it belongs to one or the other, or maybe neither. I mean, there could be, if it's a fragment, I mean, things are always harder, but I mean like a full blown, you know, composition. Right. But how do we tell there's some big difference between 60 and 80 AD? I mean, there just isn't going to be a big difference, right? So why should we be so confident in our ordering? Well, I don't think we have any real firm basis for saying so. After all, we have the writings and we kind of assume, or there is an easy assumption that, well, if Paul's writing in the mid-50s, which he is, uh, and we think of Paul's earlier letters and his later letters, and we try and see a development in ideas between the two, all we're really doing is commenting on differences between the letters. We do not know, we cannot really say that what Paul writes in Philippians is a development on from what he wrote in Galatians, say, if we say that Philippians is six, seven, eight years later than Galatians. He may have been saying the very same things that he says in Philippians orally Mm -hmm. uh, to his ecclesias as he happens to have written down then in sort of the late 50s. And so why should we say that uh, his Galatian theology is different to his Romans theology or his Mm -hmm. Philippians theology? So the, I have the same sort of approach to the four Gospels. Yes, there's a great difference between John because he's far more abstract in his presentation of Jesus, the significance of Jesus, mm-hmm. and also in his emphasis on Jesus' discourses yeah. as opposed to the narrative details of his life. Mm-hmm. So I just tend to treat it all in the mix rather than trying to develop developmental theories between, say, the four Gospels or in the letters of Paul. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Perry focuses in on the question of what John means by the beginning here. us back to John 1, our concept of the beginning sort of extends over time. Uh, We might say, Mm -hmm. well, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and think of the period of about 30, 40 years in the 1800s in England as the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And I think the same is going on in John. He's writing later than the ministry of Jesus, obviously, some decades later, and he's looking back on the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in John 1 verse 1, and that's the beginning that he's talking about. Our understanding, say, of the beginning of the church would be, say, the period 30 to 70. No, that's an excellent point. I mean, usually the beginning is a time period. It could be as short as a day or a moment, but very often, you know, looking way back in time, it's, it's years or decades even. Yeah. So you're saying the idea that the beginning is somehow like eternity or timelessness or something, it's, it's actually, that's a strange way to take it and not normal. In your writings on this, you refer to the use of the Greek term arche here in John and in the rest of the New Testament. Yeah. There are lots of texts in the New Testament writings referring to this beginning. So, for example, in the first letter of John, we have in the first verse, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. Well, this is just the normal sort of recollection of a beginning in real time. That was sometime in the past from the point of view of the author. And he's describing a real experiences of hearing and seeing and handling with their hands. There's nothing here that's timeless and about eternity. Mm. The reality of the beginning is what John is referring to in uh, John 1 verse 1. Mm -hmm. And there are other verses like that. I mean, the Gospel of Mark opens in a similar way. He says, the beginning of the Gospel of the Son of God. The apostles refer to the beginning in their own time 
a significant event, which was the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist just before that. Mm. So one of the unquestioned dogmas, I think, in contemporary commentaries on this passage is that obviously this is a reference, NRK is a reference in the beginning to Genesis 1, because the Greek version of Genesis 1 says NRK. And so we get to talking about things coming into being or being made. And so obviously this is all kind of a riff or a comment on the Genesis creation. But you're suggesting not so fast. Maybe it's a different beginning. And it's it's yeah. not really disputable that those other NRK uses are not about the Genesis creation. They're about something like the beginning of Jesus's ministry or kind of the Christian era or something like that. I know you, you admit in your um, essays that there is a kind of gesture at Genesis 1 here, but you do not think this is giving you more detail on the Genesis creation. So tell us about that. Yeah, he's not commenting on the Genesis creation. He is quoting from Genesis 1 and uh, alluding to Genesis 1 in order to describe a new creation. Hmm. So one of the big points of difference between Trinitarian readings is that they see the Genesis creation here, and the word is related to the Genesis creation, whereas what John is doing is using the language of Genesis 1 to model uh, the reality of the new creation that he sees happening in Jesus. So, yes, we are quoting Genesis 1 verse 1 with NRK, and we are quoting Genesis 1 verse 1 with the refrain of, and it was so becoming... In John chapter 1, uh, the word was made, uh, or, or all things came through the word, or became through the word, or the word became flesh. Uh, we are quoting Genesis 1, or alluding to Genesis 1, with the mention of darkness and light and the play between those two. Mm-hmm. But what John is doing, he's modeling the new creation. Interesting. So you're saying, well, sure, there's creation language here, but that's because when you use this theme of new creation, which is an indisputable theme in Paul, when you talk about new creation, you're going to appropriate old creation language. And so you you think that's kind of what's going on here. I think very often people just push Paul off to the side. Well, Paul's a different conversation. You know, let's talk about Stoicism and uh, Philo and more exciting things we think are in the background of this prologue. And they don't usually reach for Paul as a way to expound John's thoughts. But I guess whenever you date John, it's going to be in the wake of Paul, right? Paul's 40s, 50s, 60s, dies in the 60s. Yeah. Maybe they're not all into Paul at that point, you know, but surely he's going to have a broad influence. And so why not ask the question, could this be the new creation theme? The transition between verse 3 and verse 4 is a textual issue. The transition is this, that which was made in him was life, when we move between verse 3 and 4. Some translations have the last clause of verse 3 actually part of verse 4. The revised version does this. So I think the definition of what is being talked about is given to us there that which was made is life in him so we're talking about new life in christ uh, and therefore the new creation so it seems fairly clear to me that it's the new creation in john that we have to deal with and this ties in with the beginning being the beginning of the ministry of jesus what you're saying is that the all things is all of the creatures who have been, so to speak, recreated, all the recipients of, of this eternal life. A lot of Trinitarians, my experience here, will pound the table and they'll just say, look, all means all. You know, why can't you read? All clearly here has to be all the things in the cosmos. You don't take it that way. And again, it goes back to Paul. And when he, when he refers to, quote, all things, or in Greek, tapanta, you take something like 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there's one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. The emphasis there is on us being of the Father, but through Christ. Mm-hmm. And what are we but new creatures in Christ? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the new creation, creation there. And we through We're not him. talking yeah. about all things. All things is being circumscribed and delimited by 
us, we through him, we of him, of the Father, but through Christ. The Greek tapanta is different than the English all things, isn't it? In that all things suggests that we're not talking about persons or selves. We're talking about like objects, right? Just the, the word thing suggests a non-person, but it doesn't have that connotation, does it? Yeah. In English, that would be, you would think things are things and people are people, but that's not the case in the, the text we're looking at. Mm-hmm. You could go to Colossians and look at the Colossians hymn and something like, you know, by him were all things reconciled, mm. whether in earth or in heaven. Mm-hmm. Reconciliation and all things, it's not about objects, chairs and tables, it's about people yes. being reconciled, particularly Jew and Gentile being reconciled. So the new creation that Paul sees is all about people becoming new creatures in Christ and Jews and Gentiles being reconciled. And this is what we have in John chapter 1. So Paul, uh, John is taking Paul's theology of all things and drawing it up within his prologue. Let's talk about another disputed question here. We talked about what does all things mean? We talked about which creation is this referring to? What is meant by the beginning? Another disputed question about this is what's meant by the word? Yeah. Actually, on this point, you know, you kind of agree with the Trinitarians in that the word is the same person as the man Jesus Christ. You take this to be about Jesus throughout the whole passage. You don't think it starts to be about Jesus in verse 10 or in verse 14. No, this is just a Jesus passage from start to finish. And so tell us, why do you take the Logos to be the man Jesus? I mean, Psalm 33, 6 uh, and other passages, God creates things through his word. And that just seems to mean kind of the same thing as he spoke things into existence. The word doesn't seem to be a a person or a human being there. But in this context, you're saying, no, I do think the word here, that phrase, the word, is just a way of referring to the man, Jesus. So why do you read it that way? Uh, Well, the normal Trinitarian reading of John 1 is to see a sequence from verse 1 through to verse 14, so that there was Mm -hmm. a time, a timeless time, if you want, where there was the word. And then at some point in time, uh, the word became flesh. Whereas I read verses 1 through to 14 and through to 18, the whole of the prologue, as being about a description of the beginning of the ministry and what that ministry is, the ministry of Christ compared to the ministry of John the Baptist. So when I look at the word in verse 1, I see the predicates was toward God. It's usually translated with God, but it's got a sense of facing toward God, and the other predicate was God, and I see these predicates as being personal, as indicating that we're talking about a person, uh, particularly was toward God. And when we look at what is toward God, or what faces toward God in other texts, there's quite a lot of them with this Greek construction, and they're all really about someone who is mediating or interceding between God and man. A particular example would be Moses, who is said to be towards God for the people and as God towards the people, back in Exodus chapter 4. So I think it's fairly clear that we're talking about Jesus in verse 1. The difference between verse 1 and 14, where it says the word became flesh, is there we have a reference to God's word becoming flesh. It's when God's word has become flesh that we have Jesus and he is then the word. I kind of distinguish between the two uses as lowercase word and uppercase word. So that we have uppercase word in verse 1 and we have lowercase word in verse 14 because Jesus is the word become flesh. There's a couple of big points here that you've made. One is that you do not see a sequence, you know, from earlier to later through this text. No, it's the same time. Mm -hmm. And then the word in verse one, you don't think refers to the same thing as the word in verse 14, because the word in 14, you take to be kind of a fulfillment of prophecy in the birth of Jesus. No, I don't. I have have in the past said that. Obviously, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy is the word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I see what's going on in John chapter 1 as God's word. We might say the voice of God becoming flesh in Jesus, so that he is the word of the new creation. In the way that God spoke in Genesis 1, and it was so, he said, let there be light, and there was light. So too, with regard to the new creation, Jesus is the equivalent of that word, the voice of God, so that what he says to bring about new creatures in him, that is him being the word of God. So Jesus is the word become flesh, and when that has happened, which it does, then uh, he is the word with a capital W in, in the English. So in one of your essays, you say that if there is any time difference, it's actually backwards. It's not from earlier to later. You say that in the beginning is a reference to particularly Jesus's public ministry. Um, yeah. But then you say, and the word became flesh, that is kind of talking about his being born. So that's actually... You can treat the whole thing as if it's the same, quote, the same time, which is this large beginning time. But if you want to make finer distinctions, in your view, 14 is kind of looking back a little farther than verse 1. Well, that's what I've said in my essays that you've read. But I'm in the process of changing my view. And I'm now seeing verse 14 and verse 1 as about the beginning of the ministry of Christ. Normally people regard verse 1 as the incarnation text, mm -hmm. and therefore the word became flesh uh, through the process of being born of the Virgin Mary. But I'm changing my view to the position that verse 14 is about the baptism of Christ. Oh, about the baptism. Help me understand how your reading became flesh. I mean, I know it's not the Trinitarian, you know, where becoming flesh gets spun up into this metaphysics of assuming a complete human nature. I know it's not that, but how is that became flesh sort of functioning on your reading? It's simply that when we look at Christ, he is, in his words, the voice of God. And what he says in the ordering of the world, as uh, now he has that role of being Lord of heaven and earth, in the ordering of the world, and also in the bringing to faith individuals, then he is the creator of the new creation, or the word that brings about that new creation. The word becoming flesh is that concept, that instead of God speaking, and it becomes so, as in Genesis 1, it is Jesus doing and saying and it becoming so, and that is the new creation. But I think what we need to ask ourselves, which is the question that I've been asking just recently, is when would the word of God become flesh? It's kind of assumed that, well, that must be the birth of Christ, but mm -hmm. if we look back, the word of God becomes flesh in prophets, when they're adults, they are imbued with the spirit. And so I think that the word becoming flesh is actually referring to uh, Jesus's baptism and then the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him. From that moment, he is the word of the new creation. In the Old Testament, the word of God comes to a prophet and then they prophesy. And I'm not quite sure I understand the connection, but between verse 14 and the baptism. Clearly there is a power. I think people always over-literalize that scene. They're like, well, this bird came down and landed on Jesus. I'm not sure it's supposed to be taken that way. Um, it's that a power comes down on him, dove-like in a sense, so to speak, lands on him. And then all of a sudden he's doing all these amazing miracles and you know, those weren't mentioned before. You know, he says in John later that he's been given the spirit without measure. Are there other passages in the Old Testament or earlier Jewish writings where it says the, something like the God's word became flesh, like in Elijah or Moses or somebody? No, that was just me making an analogy between the prophets of old. Uh -huh. The only example we might have said was when God said, let us make man in our image, and those words became flesh in the creation of Adam and Eve. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think it is that Jesus is being given and made into the word of God 
with regard to the new creation. And that's what verse four, that I think happens okay. in his baptism. I mean, you mentioned my papers that are on academia.edu. All what I'm saying now is in a new paper that I'm busy writing mm. to upload onto academia.edu. Okay. With regard to the baptism of Christ in verse 14. If you read this as having to do with the Genesis creation, you're going to think that in verse 10, again, it's referring to the world, like the cosmos, everything in time and space. You're going to think again, it's saying in verse 10 that the cosmos came through the word or the, the word and the light, this, the same one. So 10 says in the New Revised Standard, he was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all received him who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. So the last part sounds like Jesus to most readers. And if the end of that passage is talking about Jesus, they say, well, surely it's the same he earlier. And um, look, it says the world came into being through him. So isn't it saying that this same self that we call Jesus, is the one through whom God created? What you find in the commentaries is, is that they don't really give you an analysis of what the world is and what that term is referring to within the prologue or within the Gospel of John as a whole. It tends to be just taken to be, well, we all know what the world is. Mm -hmm. But my question would be, well, do we? And as far as I can see, looking at verses 10 through 13, the world was made through him. John is telling us what he understands the world to be. And it's a, a societal concept. It's about people and it's about the nation because he says, well, he came into his own, but his own received him not. His focus is upon people coming to your own people. And so that the world that was made through him, through Jesus, is the world that is the nation from John's point of view. It's the not nation the world Israel? as we might use today, or the earth or the universe. It's not the concept of all things that we have in John chapter 1, verse 3. It's the nation that came to be through him. And therefore, we have to ask ourselves, well, how could that be? How can John say the nation came to be through him? And I think what we have to understand this is a major difference between my method of approach and commentaries, is we have to understand that John is using typology, the language of typology. And what he's seeing here in Christ is the world coming through an individual in the Old Testament, the nation coming through an individual in the Old Testament, and that individual being a type of Jesus. And the individual that he has in mind, I think, is Isaac. Because in the death and resurrection, typologically speaking, of Isaac with his father Abraham as they go to Mount Moriah, and he offers Isaac upon Mount Moriah, this is taken to be a type of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's because of that and through that that the nation came through Isaac because of that death and resurrection, because Isaac didn't die and remained dead but was raised from the dead. What John sees in that typology is that, well, a nation or a people, and for us it's the new creation, a new creation will come into being through the death and resurrection of Christ. But that's true of the new creation, but it's also true of the uh, nation of Israel. Uh, they came to be through the death, death and resurrection of Isaac upon Mount Moriah. So the difference here is I'm reading the language typologically. But I can't just arbitrarily read the language typologically. I can't just say, oh, there's a type there. I have to see indications that, that there is a type here. And one of the indications I think we have in the prologue is this emphasis on Jesus as the only begotten or the only begotten son. And uh, that emphasis of only begotten is really uh, telling us, well, here we have Isaac, because Isaac was thy son, thine only son. Yahweh says to Abraham, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me, therefore uh, I will do things for you. And the fact that we have in the prologue this description of Jesus as the only begotten, I think is telling us that 
John sees the type of Isaac, or Isaac as a type of Christ, and he's uh, sort of building into his description of Christ and the ministry of Christ and the significance of Christ. He's building all this around, in this case, in verse 10, a typology centered on Isaac. Okay, so then you read verse 10 as, he was in the world, and you think the world is is what? It, it was, it, it's the church? No, no, it's the nation, the nation of the Jews. Okay, he was in Israel, and Israel came into being through him? Yeah, the nation came into being through Jesus, as we see Jesus in the death and resurrection of Isaac. It's no different in principle from seeing the rock in the wilderness as Jesus, or the water that comes out of the rock as Jesus, or seeing the ark in the tabernacle as Jesus, or the mercy seat as Jesus. Typology is going on all the time in the New Testament writings. Sometimes it's very on the surface and explicit, like, say, in Hebrews, and sometimes it's uh, more subtle and underneath the surface, Mm -hmm. as we have here in the prologue. I mean, one of another indication, not in the prologue, but in the verses immediately following, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The testimony of John the Baptist, which begins in verse 19, in this repetition, Behold the Lamb of God, Mm -hmm. what we have here is another allusion to this Mount Moriah episode, Mm. because Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide for himself a lamb. Mm And the very meaning of Moriah, the naming of Moriah, one of the meanings is the Lord will see as well as the Lord will provide. Mm -hmm. But what we have here in look or see the Lamb of God, we have John telling us, well, Jesus is Isaac. We see in him the Lamb of God that God would provide instead of Isaac. But Isaac's death and resurrection, as we read in Hebrews 11, that's a figure or a parable of Jesus's death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of Isaac. Back to the this chunk of the prologue, verse 11, he yeah. came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. You think that's a different way of talking about, quote, the world in the previous verse? Yeah. The world is, is the nation, his people. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. It's explanatory of that. But it's not just that I've sort of imposed this typology on verse 10, we have elsewhere in the other verses indications that an Isaac typology is in his thinking because he uses the expression only begotten and he talks about Jesus. He uses the title, the Lamb of God of Jesus. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Perry and I discuss two other important men who are described in this famous passage. Dr. Perry, one thing about this passage is that interpreters have become so obsessed with theology and Christology that they tend to sort of leave aside two other very important men who are mentioned here, which are John the Baptist and Moses. What are they doing there? How does this relate to Jesus? Well, I think this is an area where we would have more in common with normal commentary readings because there's a contrast going on between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. There's obviously a need, or John, within his own environment, sees that there's a need to make this contrast, to make it clear why John the Baptist's ministry is something that comes before the ministry of Jesus, and that uh, John the Baptist is not the Messiah, as we would say, but Jesus is the Messiah. I think that's the reason why we have John the Baptist here, presented in this way, Obviously, the other Gospels begin with the birth of Christ, or Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. So John's Gospel is beginning in the same way. So that's another reason why we would have John the Baptist mentioned at the beginning. 
but the way he presents John the Baptist's ministry is in a set of contrasts with Jesus as the true light. I think what we have here is a typology in which John the Baptist is, like Moses, the man who was sent to witness to the light that he had seen when he went to Israel in Egypt, and the light that he had seen was the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. So I think there's a typology here in which Moses is represented or typed by John the Baptist, and Jesus is typed by the angel of the Lord who delivered Israel from Egypt. So that's the general understanding I have of why John the Baptist is there presented in that way. And in the last paragraph of the prologue, we have Moses specifically mentioned. I think this would be just an understandable motivation. Uh, it's understandable that John would be wanting to make a contrast between the law and what the ministry of Christ is or what the, the gospel of Christ is in terms of grace and truth. So we have the, the grace of the new covenant being contrasted with the grace of the old covenant. So mm -hmm. wanting to make a contrast with the law, I don't really see there's a problem for us to understand why he would want to do this in the prologue. He just thinks that Jesus is a greater revelation of God than Moses, right? And that Jesus brought further truth that Moses didn't know about, something like that? Um, not particularly. It's really about wanting to establish Jesus as the, I mean, one's tempted to use language from elsewhere so that we might want to, a Pauline language where we might want to say, well, he's establishing Jesus as having fulfilled the law and being the end of the law and having brought in a new covenant. He's wanting to establish that Jesus is the basis of approaching God and fellowship with God, mm -hmm. as opposed to the framework of the law, which was given by Moses. So we could take various bits and pieces from New Testament writings to establish, well, what's the difference between the law of Moses vis-a-vis -vis man's relationship to God and Jesus and his gospel message and his covenant and how that sets up man's relationship with God. So I think there, that's all we've got going in the contrast between the law and Jesus and Moses and Jesus in the prologue. Mm -hmm. But it's not that, oh, well, that's very different to what's going on with John the Baptist, because as I said, I think we can see a typology there between John the Baptist and Jesus and between Moses and the angel of the Lord. As the glory of the Lord was seen in Moses's face, well, so too uh, the disciples beheld the glory of the Lord in Jesus now, to us, John the Baptist is really a minor figure. You know, he has a little cameo in the Jesus movies that lasts about three minutes. You know, he baptizes Jesus. And he's, he's kind of gone. Maybe they mention, you know, when he's executed in the famous scene with the dancing girl. But um, in this time, when this was written in the first century, John was a major figure who had a, a, a real following, right? And John feels the need to present Christ as the much greater person. And John's function is really just to kind of introduce him. He seems to uh, be much more concerned with John than, than we would. Yeah, where we are in history and we look back and, and we can see the significance of Jesus. We have the benefit of the New Testament writings of Paul and so on. Whereas communities, I think, did exist. We know in Acts they existed where there were followers of John the Baptist. And I think the issue, well, was John the Baptist the Messiah or is the Messiah Jesus Christ? I think that's a real issue in the earliest of the years. Mm -hmm. and, and John is presenting that issue. So what I'm doing really is mirror reading the prologue vis-a-vis -vis John the Baptist and Jesus and saying, well, from the detail we've got here, that implies a situation where there are followers of John the Baptist where there is an issue about the identities of these two individuals as to who is the greater, who is the Messiah. And John is settling that once and for all. So, say in verse 2, we have the repetition which some people regard as mysterious. The same was in the beginning with God, or the same was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 7, we have this same one came for a witness. You know, there's a, the language is connected. Jesus is the same one who was in the beginning with God, 
And in verse 7, we have John the Baptist. He was the same one who came for a witness. There's an emphasis there mm-hmm. in the demonstratives. Mm-hmm. This one came for a witness. This one was in the beginning with God. Mm-hmm. So it's a strong distinction that he's making between between their roles and, I guess, in their importance in a sense. When the Trinity's podcast returns, why does the rest of this book never refer to Jesus as the Word? So, Dr. Perry, I just wanted to ask you about a couple things. I guess these are, in a way, objections to your reading, uh, or maybe just difficulties to be solved. So, one of them is, what would it mean to say that Jesus was God, if the Word is Jesus, and if it's not saying that he has a divine essence and is a divine person? You know, this gospel has the one true God being the Father. As I read it, it consistently distinguishes sharply between God and Jesus. Although the waters have been muddied by some common interpretations, but isn't it odd to say that the word was God? Isn't that a difficulty for your view? Because then it's saying Jesus is God right in the first verse. Yeah, it says that in the first verse, and then we have a kind of inclusio with Thomas's confession in John 20, my Lord and my God. And if we take the two together, 1-1 and John 20, 28, then I think we get a clue as to why Jesus is called God, which is that he is the God of the new creation. And by that I mean is when in Genesis 1, let us, we read, let us create man in our image. And say in Paul, we read in the image of God created he him. What we have in Thomas's confession, and therefore in John chapter 1, is an acceptance that Jesus is the God in whose image we are created. So that this is actually Pauline theology again, because Paul talks about Christ in us and us being conformed to his image. But if we're conformed to his image, necessarily, Paul is saying, well, the image into which we are being conformed is an image that is God. So God is Jesus with regard to the new creation. But also, he is the word of God, the word of Yahweh, with regard to that new creation. And that's why in John 1, we have the two together. He is both the word of God, that's to say the word of Yahweh, the Father, the only true God. And he's also the God in whose image we are created. So he's the God of the new creation. And that's why we have that inclusio and why we have that information presented to us. So it's all tied into this reading of John chapter 1, the prologue, um, as being about the new creation. It's all consistent with that reading. Okay, so both in the Thomas episode and here when it says the word was God, the translation capital G-O-D would be misleading on your interpretation, right? So, I mean, shouldn't the translation be, and the word was a God? And then he would say, my Lord and my God, lowercase g? No, I don't think, I, li- I mean, I don't like translating a God um, or going lowercase g, but I don't mind lowercase g. The reason why I would object to translating a God is because that might uh, suggest that we're talking about the angels who were gods, lowercase g, or divine beings like the angels that we regard as gods, lowercase g. I rather prefer to link it in with the imaging of God idea from Genesis, which I would say that, well, we have to take that to be the image of God himself. Okay. So then your idea is that the word was God. It means something like the word was a manifestation of God. And then Thomas would be confessing him to be a manifestation of God. Yeah. In um, the Gospel of John, we have two ideas. The first idea, which I've mentioned about Jesus being God of the new creation, and the second idea is that Jesus is a manifestation of Yahweh, his Father, because he says, he who has seen me hath seen the Father. 
And there is that element also in the context of Thomas's confession, because mm-hmm. uh, he says to Thomas, well, you've seen me. Mm-hmm. And in saying to Thomas, you've seen me, he's, he's indicating, well, yes, you've now understood who I am, that I, I, I show the Father. So Jesus uh, is a manifestation of God. And from that point of view, he could say he was God, or use the term God of him. But I actually think we should go with the first idea. And I think that's the primary idea, that Jesus is the God of the new creation, i.e. he's that in which we are being imaged. We are images of, or meant to be, images of him. I kind of see when Thomas says, my God, you see, when when he says that, there's an emphasis there. Um, My Lord is my master, my Lord, my master in that sense. And when he says, my God, he's kind of picking up, well, that's what God intended when he said, let us create man in our image. There's this personal aspect to our imaging of Jesus, which is reflecting the personal aspect of Adam imaging God in Genesis. Dr. Perry, another thing a lot of readers have noticed, and um, seems to me this is a difficulty for your view. In John, you know, famously, Jesus claims all these high titles that actually aren't in the other Gospels. So, you know, I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the true bread, the vine, and so on. But John, in the rest of the gospel, doesn't refer to Jesus as the word, the logos. And to me, that's a little strange. It's almost like he doesn't want you to think Jesus is the word. He's called him everything else, but he doesn't want to call him the word, lest you think he was the word that started off the book. Why doesn't he have Jesus say, I am the word of God? Well, that's a good question, (laughs) in the sense that I don't have an answer to that but I don't see that the absence of more the word language is a problem for what I'm saying about the prologue. If we look at the New Testament, we know that the title, the word, for Jesus is rare. We have two, three, four verses maybe maximum where we would say, oh yes, the word there is a title for Jesus, Revelation 19 being Mm -hmm. the only secure verse where everybody agrees that that is a title there for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's rare in the whole of the New Testament. So the prologue of John is quite distinctive, I think, in presenting Jesus as the word mm-hmm. of, the new, of the new creation. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with that, but I, I don't see why that would cast doubt on the reading. We just need to speculate or try and be imaginative as to, well, why wouldn't there be more use of the title, the word, vis-a-vis Jesus in all of the New Testament writings? Mm-hmm. So I don't really have a problem with that. I don't think it casts doubt on the new creation reading of John 1. It just gives us a problem of understanding or trying to understand, well, why don't we have more use of that title? Mm-hmm. We can make the same sort of question, well, Say, for example, Paul only uses the language form of God in Philippians 2. Mm. Why doesn't he use that elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Or why doesn't another writer of the, in the New Testament use that kind of language? We could pose the question there. Common stuff, obviously, we don't have a problem with the titles Lord, Christ, Son, and so on. It's only the distinctive and unique titles or phrases or descriptions of Christ that we might have that question. Sure. You know, why is it why is it only once here? Sure. Or twice. Dr. Perry, some uh, listeners I think are going to suppose that this interpretation that you've been expounding of the prologue is just sort of out of left field. Uh, is, is oddball, it's it's cranky, it's something, you know, whoever heard of this before. But in fact, this was famously defended by the Socinian Anabaptists and by others. Um, how have you interacted with the history of this view? Is, in, did you come to this view at first by reading some historical Protestants, or how does that relate to your coming to this understanding? Well, the short answer is no. Um, I've been told that it's a Socinian view. Mm-hmm. I haven't really read Anabaptist theology, just one or two little pamphlets and pieces over the years. Um, this view is I came across, well, some bits of it anyway, the uh, element that is the new beginning uh, and the new creation readings, 
that aspect of it uh, comes from a Christadelphian commentator who was a popular writer back in the 1980s. So I got the new creation reading from him. Other bits and pieces have kind of come from me. So, so for example, this emphasis on how Jesus is the word of God, being the word of the new creation, and how Jesus is the God of the new creation, that's coming from me. I haven't read that and said, oh, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll put that into what I think. And the reading, the baptismal reading of verse 14 is something that I've been developing recently. Uh, so I haven't picked that up from anywhere. That's interesting. So, okay, so you more or less came to it independently. Um, yeah, this is in the uh, Rakovian Catechism, famous book by the Socinian scholars. And um, another interesting place that it can be found is it's basically like a Unitarian study Bible New Testament. It was called the New Testament in an improved version. It was done right. by British scholars. And this is the interpretation that they offer in their notes of John 1, mm. basically the, the basic type of interpretation that you're expounding. And they do mention another one that some Unitarians take, but this is the one that they prefer. Uh, but you're saying in a way you came to it more or less independently if there's any influence from the Socinians, it's probably uh, second and third hand through through a few others. Yeah. Are you aware of anybody in pre-modern times who took this type of reading? I know our evidence of interpretation of this early on is, is scant, but um, do you have any indication that people were giving a new creation reading to this business about the word early on? Well, um, I've I come across, obviously, Commentators do see the new creation in the prologue, but they don't necessarily see it in, say, verses 1 through to 3. They'll see it in the later verses, so they'll see it in, um, let's say, verses 10 through to 13, where we have talk about uh, children of God and so on. They'll see the, the new creation there. They'll use new creation language to, to describe verses 10 through 13. So a commentator like F.F. F. Bruce will talk about the new creation in in the prologue of John. So it's not alien to the prologue, it's just that I'm consistently reading John 1 through to 18 within the framework of the new creation idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think historically the, the Logos theories through the course of the 200s kind of came to sweep the field and people just could not read this without thinking, oh, well, obviously God created through his Logos uh, you can't have God creating directly, right? Right. And so here it is right here. All things came into being through him. And uh, then any kind of purely new creation reading is just off the table once you're that far. Yeah. And the word is sometimes taken to be a person or a being or a hypostasis in verse one, which then becomes incarnated in verse 14. It's a sequential reading, yep. which is the default reading so much so that People aren't able and aren't stepping out of the box and saying, well, when would it be appropriate in God dealing with an individual for that individual to become the word? Would it be appropriate for that to happen before the individual was born? Or would it be appropriate for that to happen when the individual is an adult and about to begin a ministry on behalf of God? Getting people or Trinitarians to think outside the box is a challenge. Yeah, well, it's been a challenge for a long time. I mean, I have the impression in reading a lot of fourth century stuff, so stuff from the 300s, that, you know, among the elite class whose writings we have, for them, origin is just such a such an authority. Yeah. They are just not going to deviate from him. It's kind of dueling interpretations of origin, and there there is still a monarchian, um, modalistic monarchian strand going on, and there's even a dynamic monarchian strand that still exists in the three hundreds. But for the majority, like they are just not going to deviate from what the great master thinks. Like they're a little almost idolatrous about him, in my view. To me, he's just a scholar like any other scholar, but the way they view him is just this this founding father kind of almost apostolic kind of guy, this particular class of people. Dr. Perry, thanks for talking with us. Thanks very much for having me.
This week's thinking music has been the track Anoitaser Nightfall by Gee Frog. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.